Okay. Happy to be back. Today I'm joined with uh, a professor that I just had last semester. Um, I took her biology class and um, I enjoyed it. I'm, all, I'm a big biology guy. I love biology and chemistry. I've always been passionate about that stuff, so it wasn't hard for me to like your class, but I enjoyed it very much. Um, and I was like, I should totally get her on the podcast to talk shop about biology because like it's so cool. Um, so I'm here with Professor Susan Herrick from the University of Connecticut. Um, you want to give yourself a quick intro? Sure. What would you like to know? <laughs> I guess just like, uh, so, I don't know, one fun fact out of where you're from. What's your uh, favorite I, you know, one animal? thing that students don't know about me a lot, one thing that students don't understand a lot of the time is I'm homegrown. Like, I did all of my education in Connecticut. So I did my undergrad at Eastern, my master's at Central, and my PhD at UConn. And I've, I've never lived for any length of time outside of Connecticut. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel like a Yankee, right? <laughs> Yanks don't move. That's what people always say, right? That's, that's old, old, old Yankee families. We don't move. Do you ever wish you got out of Connecticut? Yes. Where would you have gone? Were hmm. you, like, did you ever have the chance to, like, get out? <laughs> um, not really. Like, uh, as far as chances, you mean, like, an opportunity, someone calling up and saying, hey, there's this cool whatever going on or over Or just, here. like, going, or, like, you could have pursued your PhD other than UConn. You could have gone oh. to another university or something like that. I think, I think that's... Yeah. One easy way that people move out of their city is for educational purposes, um, right, like right. I did. Like, I'm from Houston, but I was like, oh, I'll go to Connecticut. You know, that's a good reason, right, to <laughs> doing school, so. Sure, sure, that's great. Yeah, I was a very non-traditional student. I never had that opportunity to go away to school at any point. So my um, my education was always, my major parts of my education were uh, after, post-children. So I went back to school. Got you. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a fun fact that a lot of people also don't know. I went off to school as a 18 year old, feeling perfectly like I was flapping in the wind, right? Because mm -hmm. like most 18 year olds do when they go off to college. I was living at home and I went up to UConn uh, as a freshman and I was <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> Never seen a syllabus in my life. Yeah. However, like I had no idea. I had no idea that there was this thing called a financial aid advisor, mm -hmm. or that there were academic advisors, or any of that sort of thing. I have. I really can't even remember how it all worked back then. But I was working a full time job, like you know, back then at like five dollars and twenty cents an hour, and paying for school on my own, which at UConn was something like nine hundred dollars a semester or something like that. It was crazy. Amazing. Yeah. But of course, at $5 an hour, that was yeah. pretty tough. Um, but I was working way too much. And you know, I never ran into a single person who said, hmm, maybe you ought to not work full time and try to go to school full time. So of course, I uh, um, immediately failed that semester. They gave me a second shot the second semester because they do that with everybody, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even back then. And of course, uh, just could not, could not swing it. Mm -hmm. So I failed out of college the first time that I tried college, and not a lot of students understand that about me. Um, but also, fun fact, I failed out of college a second time. <laughs> um, because I was still working um, as a, trying to be independent as a teenager, and um, did not want to give up on school. So then I went to Eastern, 
and I would, didn't change anything at all except that he went to Eastern. I don't know, maybe I was thinking the commute would save me some time and I'd be yeah. able to be better. I don't know. But I had never, ever struggled with school in my life. And um, that was shocking for me. It was really shocking for me. But I never really walked away from it. I always took classes part time. I was always dabbling, if you will, in school here and there for many years, even, even after I started a, a career in banking and uh, started a family. And then one day I said, hmm, time to go back. Yeah. But I knew what, what I wanted. I yeah. thought I knew what I wanted and I knew what I wanted to do and I knew the track I had to take and it was uh I'm not saying it was easy by any stretch but my my investment in my schoolwork was very very different from and my focus was very very different as well than from when I was a teenager so I'm sure it made you better for it you know and definitely made it more the harder you have to work for something the more Mm -hmm. passionate you are the, the more you care about it the more you make it your own um, because you understand how much work you put into that so you care about it that much more um, yeah and I think you're not willing to compromise for anything like you're not willing to put up with oh that's a waste of my time I'm not doing it right mm -hmm. you're, you're just not gonna you just put it aside and that's the end of it because you're so focused mm -hmm. because you know what it costs right yeah so what was your focus in education wise, I guess, like what, what oh, interested yeah. you? Yeah, I wanted to be a high school biology teacher. Step up, you're a college biology teacher. <laughs> no, all the all teachers are teachers, don't, don't it, yeah. Uh, I, I, I couldn't do the high school thing. I just couldn't, I taught in a high school for one year. Um, after, I, after I finished my undergrad, I stepped into the day before school started was hired to teach completely outside of my field of expertise. I taught chemistry and mm. physics and, and then also to upper to juniors and seniors. And then I also, it was a combined school. So I also was teaching life sciences to seventh graders. So I was dealing with 12 year olds in, in two classes and then mm -hmm. 17, 18 year olds in, in the other, the other classes and uh, none of it within my own field. I had, yeah. <laughs> Just wasn't fun. It, it, no, no, the teaching is fun if you can actually teach. Um, I was very unprepared for classroom management. Mm. Um, very disappointed. I, I'd come home at night and just be like, I got like three minutes of teaching in like they actually learned one thing today you know mm. and they'll forget it by tomorrow kind of thing i got very disheartened by the whole by the whole process and absolutely hated it and it wasn't because of the kids it really was not because of the students it was because i wasn't prepared for what i was supposed to be doing you know it's, it's a different being a, a high school teacher being a grammar school teacher being a college teacher we're all teachers it's just a different beast right it's a different kind of teaching so yeah it was a uh, Eye-opening. <laughs> Eye-opening to have gone to school for seven years part-time, raising three toddlers and, and running a household and trying to work a couple part-time jobs on the side. <laughs> and then after seven years, figuring out, oh, uh, maybe you ought to rethink your path mm. <laughs> a little bit here because that kind of sucked. <laughs> um, I felt really terrible. Um, I still see some of the students from back then here and there. Uh, and they're, 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 they're great. Uh, but <laughs> not for so, me so the goal was always to teach always yeah yeah okay. I had started on um, one of my part-time jobs I had I'm involved as you know in the fire service and um uh, back in the late 80s I had um an early you know late 80s I had taken a lot of classwork uh to be a firefighter and to be a fire service instructor uh and I rose up the ranks in that sort of stuff teaching uh, at the fire school teaching 
hundreds and hundreds of people from around New England. Um, and I realized how much I really enjoyed the process of bringing material to somebody and helping them learn a job that I loved. Of course, I love firefighting. I'm much more a firefighter than an EMT, even though EMT kind of takes up most of our time mm-hmm. nowadays. People are good at not having fires in their houses. <laughs> yes. Which is great. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the process of seeing these young people, young people and in, in the early days, a lot of older people as well, because we didn't have a lot of formal training back then. Uh, particularly in not just in the paid departments, but in the in the volunteer departments as well. Um, so it was kind of uh, kind of fun to just sort of as a team kind of get through these uh, formal stuff, these formal information uh, bits and pieces, uh, but also the the physical aspects of learning how to best do this or how to best do that uh, without getting yourself hurt or injured or uh, in some way by by equipment or by what you're doing or you know just by not paying attention or I don't know. I, I very much see the value in knowing a lot about building construction and fire behavior mm-hmm. um, to be a safe firefighter. Um, really, at the end of the day, knowing building construction and fire behavior really goes 95% of the way to keeping you safe. Um, and understanding that is, is kind of important. So it's kind of my thing. But yeah, I knew I loved the teaching and, um, and I knew I loved science. And, and the funny thing is, back when I was in high school um, in the early 80s, they didn't really... My my counselor, my academic counselor, school, what do you call them? I guess counselors, right? Guidance For, counselor. Yeah, guidance, yeah, yeah, just a counselor. Some kind of yeah, counselor. Guidance counselors, yeah. She was somebody on the edge of retirement and had been brought up in the era, you know, of the 30s and 40s and 50s. And women went off and ran uh, offices, right? You were an office manager or you were mm-hmm. somebody's secretary or something like that. And so that's where she directed me. When I went to UConn, I went into the School of Business as 18 years as an 18 year old but had she looked at a single thing that I had done in high school she would have easily seen that I was a scientist I didn't even know I was but it clearly if you look back at anything I did in high school it was Mm -hmm. all science related even my social studies work (laughs) it's like we had an assignment and and I I point this out to my kids uh every once in a while it's like yeah you know even social studies can be about can be about uh science because I did I did a project we had to do these projects and I did a project on the lost colony of Jamestown Right, the island that got, where all the people died, you know. Roanoke. Like, Roanoke, yeah, there you go. Um, and they called it the Lost Colony. And it's mm-hmm. like, was it disease? Was it food resources? Were they eating each other? What happened? You know, mm-hmm. it's like I had all this bio stuff floating around in my head all the time and didn't have, I just didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know, you know. Like, I didn't yeah. have questions that I needed to ask to get myself to where I should have been. If anybody had said, hey, you should go into biology back then, my life probably would have been a bit different, but but I wouldn't be here today and I wouldn't appreciate the process the way that I do. For sure, for sure. So like, yeah, you talk about you were scientists, you were definitely interested in the sciences, the biologies. Did you ever question like, oh, maybe I want to go more research or maybe I want to go more the medicine side of it rather than teaching? Yeah, sure. There's a point, um, there's a point everybody who does bio uh, academic career where you have to make that sort of make a decision that way. And I was introduced um, at Eastern as an undergrad to field work uh, and to behavioral sciences, behavioral ecology uh, overall. And uh, that was just such a perfect fit for me. And I just, and it's funny, it took a professor looking at me and saying, well, you are going to take my animal behavior class next semester, right? And I was like, well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, and and he said, 
well, you are obviously a behavioral ecologist. And I was like, what? He's like, well, obviously, you know, like this, 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 and this. And, and then it's, it's like being, I don't know, I feel like you're walking around in a, in a black room and like you're, you know, bumping against all the walls and finally a door opens up and it's like, oh, that's where I'm supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I, that was the start of it. And so I did some field work and learned a bunch of stuff about birds and bird behavior and all the cool, crazy, evil things they do to each other. And uh, that just, it floats my boat and that's where I stayed. So now I work in herpetology, but I ask similar questions about uh, how one species does things to other species, not individuals, species, like two species living side by side. How did they, how did they figure out their groove, right? Like how do Mm -hmm. they both survive when one eats the other one? (laughs) Oh, but they live next to each other. How does that work? Like how do they Mm. figure it out? Um, That kind of stuff is, is just fascinating for me, so. So are you currently doing research or have you done research in the past through the university or anything like that? Oh, sure. That's how I have a PhD and a master's degree. You do research to get that. So yeah, absolutely. My PhD, so, my PhD work was in frogs. My master's degree, I did my work in ornithology still because I was coming out of my undergrad years. And, I, um, and then I figured out that doing field work on your own with birds out in you know, if field work is outside, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to find birds when you can only hear out of one ear is not very successful work. Uh, so not a good thing. Um, although I still very much enjoy birds. Uh, I've, I've walked away from a lot of that. Um, and uh, I found out that, you know, hey, there's other animals out there that also are interacting with each other in the many ways, similarly to how the birds are, um, the, the particular things that birds were doing that I was interested in. And uh, turns out frogs are doing some pretty cool things too. And they stay put for the most part. <laughs> At the very least, they're not over my head, right? They're either in front of me or behind me or to my left and to the right, but they're mm-hmm. down on the ground, right? Or somewhat slightly up a tree. Um, but they're not flying around right. in a mobile where I could lose them and not be able to follow them. So it was much more satisfying uh, for me uh, with a handicap to be able to work in that sort of, uh, that, sort of that field instead of birds. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I mean, like... Yeah, I'd love to hear more about the frogs and like what they were doing or like what research were you doing with them? Oh, so so when when you're a biologist and you're doing uh, work, field work, or I'm not field work, but any sort of research work, your goal is to answer a small question, right? Um, a question that we don't know the answer to. Um, sometimes that question ends up being a really large question and very complicated with multiple sub-questions fitted in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's what a PhD ends up working out to be, where you start following a track and you use of, of a question, and it turns out there's a bunch of stuff that surrounds that question that we don't yet know, that we need to know in order to answer the question that you're after, right? So my bigger, right. broader question, as a, as a behavioral ecologist, my bigger, broader question was, you know, how is it that, and I worked locally too, by the way, with local frogs. I'm very fortunate for me as a mom <laughs> with, you know, with very young kids at home to be able to do my field research five miles from my house. I literally could ride my bike to my field site if I wanted to. Um, was very, 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 very fortunate for that as well. But um, <clears throat> so my interest for that was mostly that. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, the, 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 the underlying questions that I was looking at was, you know, green frogs and bullfrogs <clears throat> here in all over the place, but bullfrogs are looked at as sort of being these rotten frogs that 
because they eat so many different things. There's all kinds of videos online. You can see a bullfrogs eating mice and baby birds and turtles mm. and snakes yeah. and fish and whatever they can catch, they will eat, including tadpoles of their own kind. Um, or, you know, I guess if they were really hungry, probably each other. Mm -hmm. um, but anything that's a little bit smaller than their body, they'll try to eat. Um, and they just shove it into their mouths. And I had watched a bullfrog feeding on a frog, um, stuffing it into its mouth, uh, and sort of it, the frog, the, the bullfrog had this smaller frog uh, in its mouth. And the, the smaller frog was, of course, was trying to fight this process. And the bullfrog, of course, he can't reach all the way forward with his arms to pull the food into his mouth. They can't, chew, they don't chew, right? They just mm -hmm. have to follow. Um, and unlike a snake, they don't have a jaw that can sort of help them draw, draw the food in. They just can hold on to their food and they swallow it. Mm -hmm. So I watched this bullfrog with a, another frog sticking backwards out of its mouth, ram the food against the side of the pond to try to mm. put it farther into its own mouth. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> now that's interesting. Yes. <laughs> um, and so that led to a whole lot of questions about feeding behavior and feeding ecology uh, and, um, and how they're impacting these populations of green frogs that are about the th a third the size of a bullfrog um, that live right there with them. So during breeding season in the so late spring, early summer, around here at least, mm -hmm. uh, bullfrogs and green frogs are both sitting side by side in ponds that are, sim that are the, they, they both breed in the same kind of ponds, generally speaking, at about the same time of the year. And they both breed doing it the same way. They, the males come into their, to their sites uh, early uh, set up shop on a territory that they think is that they they're big and bad enough to hold right they have to defend that territory and they sit there all summer long defending that space from other intruding uh, frogs of the same species either one of them uh, and fight them off and um, but so in order to get females to come and breed with them a male who has a territory calls and in bullfrogs, it's a very loud, rumbling, long, drawn out. Sometimes people say it sounds like someone with a deep voice saying jug a rum, jug a rum, right? So it's just long time-wise mm -hmm. and loud, so noise-wise, very big call, in other words, in a simplistic term. Whereas a green frog is also attracting females by calling and holding a territory, just like the bullfrog. He might be sitting right next to the territory of a bullfrog, but he's this you know, one third the size of a bullfrog, which, you know, you need two hands to hold on to. And he's a little green frog. It's about a third the size. And his little voice and his call are both very little. So we have a bullfrog with a big voice and a big call and a little green frog with a little voice and short little call. And they just literally just, you know, clunk, 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 you know, little tiny voice calls. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, my, my advisor gave me the best advice ever. And I say this to a lot of students. You're interested in what's going on out there? Sit and watch. Literally, clear your calendar, shut off your phone, sit and watch. Use your binoculars. Right? Use your binoculars. binoculars right? <laughs> sit in a chair, sit at the side of my advisor told me, go down to the pond, take a week, go every night, sit by the side of the pond. Just watch what's going on. Think about what you're seeing. And you literally, it's, it's I don't want to say it's this existential experience or whatever, but it, you start to understand by watching and by looking at what's going on, you start to understand that it's much more complex than what you think. And that complexity brings a lot of questions. And so, yeah, so my mind started filling up with all these questions and I started to, and I figured out my question was, how is it that green frogs are clearly breeding perfectly well in mm -hmm. these ponds next to a dude who not only can outcall him and drown his voice out, but a guy who's also 
very happy to eat the little green frog who's sitting next to me. How do green frogs manage to do this successful breeding next to a competitor who's also a predator? Right? So mm -hmm. those two things, they're competing for space, they're competing for silence, um, and they also will eat a green frog. So I was kind of like, ah, this, how is that? Why are they here? You know, yeah. go somewhere else, little green frog. <laughs> no, you just want to tell them fly away right home. Um, but they're clearly doing it very successfully. So my questions were, how do they do it? And um, they do a lot of different, when, when bull, it turns out that when bullfrogs are in the pond that they're, that they're breeding in, green frogs make some behavioral changes that minimize their exposure to bullfrogs and to the potential of being eaten. They move a little closer to shore in somewhat shallower water. And they tend to put their territories behind um, what we call emergent vegetation, right? Those reeds and things that grow up out of the water. They go behind those things instead of in front of them. When bullfires are not in the pond, they basically will use any space that they can. I'm gonna mute you for a second. Just get the dogs out of here. Hang on a second. You're good. Uh, any activity in the driveway. <laughs> I understand. I have a dog that barks at anything that crosses the, the sidewalk from our house. <laughs> a leaf, blade of grass, <laughs> some air. Um, <coughs> yeah, so, so yeah, so it turns out they behaviorally, they change their position in the water and how they use the pond itself. So they use the, they use the pond differently when there's a competitor predator in the water in the summertime. Um, that wasn't there before. So I had several ponds. I had my one main pond where they were interacting. Both species were actively breeding. And then I had several ponds where there were no bullfrogs and several ponds where they were mixed. And in the no bullfrog ponds, green frogs use the whole pond, like mm. all the way out to the center, wide open, super deep water. Um, and then in the ponds where there's bullfrogs, you never see green frogs anywhere but up against the shore. And their territories, which I measured, their territories were in and mapped uh were in very different kinds of habitat and different structured uh, territories in those bullfrogs but the coolest thing was that okay that's great you can avoid the bullfrogs mm -hmm. how do the females hear you if you're getting overrun and drowned out by a bullfrog all the time i mean bullfrogs call incessantly on a very busy bullfrog pond you almost get a headache you almost get disoriented right because they're like <laughs> calling so heavily and turns out green frogs figure out the, the calling behavior of their neighboring bullfrogs uh, so well enough to be ready in a split second for a tiny gap of silence and they will stick their calls in there. It's the funniest, <laughs> it is literally the funniest thing ever. You just sit there listening to them and you can figure, and I figured it out before I actually tested for it. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, they can't, really? No, they can't be doing that. <laughs> And then the, the findings were actually even more interesting. One one hundredth of a second of, of, of silence and a green frog will stick their call in there. And, but then, and that's cool enough when you think about that. They learn the calling behavior of another species who's their neighbor and predator. But to be it, when you start thinking about the complexity of what it takes to make a call, from a, from a, it's a whole cascade of neural steps that have to happen, right? Mm -hmm. They have to be, they have to have air in their in their vocal sacs, in, in their um, buccal cavity. They have to be able to be ready to give a call. They have, their muscles have to be tensed enough to, because it's not, they're not making the call from their throat pouches, right? They're making the call from their, from their lungs and their rib cage pressing down and like, yeah. And it just, <laughs> it's really, it's insane. 
it's insane, but they do it. I don't, I just think it's the coolest thing. I have a couple of colleagues who work in the, uh, the hearing bits and pieces and how the brain works and how brain processes sound and all that. And we've talked about this before, it's way beyond <laughs> anything that I wanna look at. But it's just really cool to me to think about how different species learn about other species. Right? These green frogs have learned about bullfrogs and they've been, from an evolutionary perspective, here in New England, only with bullfrogs for maybe 12,000 years of evolutionary time. And these guys can sit right next to them in a pond, not get eaten, and find a way to get their call out so the chicks can hear him, mm -hmm. right? Around the noise of this giant bullfrog sitting next to them who's drowning out everything. So silence is something that they compete for, and these guys do it really in spades. They just, it's amazing how they do it. It really is. It's super cool. And I have thousands of hours of recordings if you'd like to listen to some of those at some point. <laughs> I would honestly not be opposed to that. Just like maybe not No maybe not just this. a snippet, you know, I'd take a little 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 sound bite, but yeah, I would definitely yeah. like you can hear the difference between the bullfrogs and the green frogs, right? And yep. that that would yep. be cool to listen to, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, is, yeah, it is cool. It's fun. It's fun stuff. But it, and the thing is, it's just if, if you start thinking about how all that must work, the complexity of it all just is mind boggling, you know. But as a PhD student, it was my job to, to figure out what the what what the parts and pieces were that we needed to know to be able to ask the overarching question is, how do green frogs do this? How mm -hmm. do they how do they survive and clearly breed successfully next to a super competitor who's also a super predator? And they just they managed to make it work and so so i figured out some of the pieces to those puzzles and along the way learned a lot about finagling my way around problems like how to set up a recording system to record 24 hours a day and not have it run out of storage space or run out of battery but yet it had to be mobile because i needed to move it around the edge of the pond which was a pretty big pond but I had to move it around the edges of the pond every night to get to a different so that i could get a full pond recording set up so there's no bias and like oh i'm just mm -hmm. constantly hitting right here because they're stationary, I needed the recording system to be mobile, right? Mm -hmm. I needed to not record the same two frogs all the time. I wanted the whole pond environment. So, yeah. <laughs> and then you have to learn about the statistics and the hours and hours of data crunching and just how to extract the data out of what you've got and get it recorded properly in your and, and organized properly so that you can run, you know, something like R or you know, Sysdat or whatever to just get answers out of your data. Uh, it's a whole huge learning process to be a PhD student and then I learned a lot about myself and a lot about the other side of science not just the oh that's cool but all the other stuff that goes with that you know mm, yeah there's always the you know it's like teaching online I was telling the TAs this uh, last semester it's like teaching online the, the not fun parts of teaching versus the fun parts of teaching and in an online environment many 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 more hours spent doing the not fun parts of teaching <laughs> instead yes. of the fun parts you know and they yeah, all were like they all they all understood exactly what I was saying, but I think a lot of people are finding finding that out. <laughs> For sure. Well, yeah, I think that. Yeah, I I love hearing about like people's research because like I don't I used to be better about this. I used to um, spend more time just like reading research papers. Uh -huh. um, I have I haven't been that good on it lately, What's but I was. Um, so I, it started out. Um, the first research papers that I was starting to get interested in was like sociology papers and then it kind of shifted to more psychology papers and then they kind of shifted to more biology papers which is like what I'm interested in mm -hmm. right now um but like 
it started out because um I don't know it's like really cool like as you said like there's this overarching question and then like I would like just read some of just like the intros um and the the background of these like research research papers and then it would like if it like caught my attention I'd be like all right let me like read this whole paper and then like see how they did it um and I was fascinated by like all these like just the the amount of thought that you have to go through to like look at it from every angle to make sure you're not like missing anything because I'd like go through these research papers and be like oh yeah I didn't even think about it to look at it from that angle but like you have to look at it from that angle or like you could miss something um so it's just like and then once ever whenever you are like thinking about all the angles that you do have to look at it from then like those bring up even more questions you know okay oh I have to do this and this now to like prove that um so it's like it's really cool I, I love like reading research papers um and I know like not a lot of people do but I, I find them super interesting and like especially when they are like found to like be conclusive um but yeah I need to start doing that more often well see almost none of them are conclusive right that's the point right you always got to leave the door open for the next person that's gonna that's true and they and they always at the end they're like oh like we could whoever is gonna like pick up like you could like research this and this question so I think that's really cool too how like just the community aspect of science of like, hey, like, okay, we researched like this part of the question, but like we still didn't get to do this, 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 and this. Like, could someone else do it? You know, like pick off. Yeah, or yourself. Where, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so are you are you currently doing research? Sure, I've got five projects sitting right over there behind me, waiting, <laughs> waiting my attention. I have just over break crammed in fifteen or sixteen. Um, papers that I, I normally am reading three or four at least uh sometimes five papers a week i try to read a paper a day just to keep up with the literature um and now it's it's really sad <laughs> because i'm not and i haven't been because of those stuff that with the online teaching but uh yeah that corner right over there is uh it's all my all my stuff i'm sitting working on i have five different projects one a couple of them are collaborations um mm -hmm. and one of them is just uh poking around in my data set i like i said i have I have 3,000 hours of 24 hours uh, around the clock recordings on my ponds and um, about 830,000 uh, data points. Mm -hmm. So yeah, <laughs> but it sits there because I have a full-time job that's very busy. Mm -hmm. uh, they sit there. I do a little bit and then I put it aside. Then I do a little bit. Um, um, as a, as a um, professor in residence, my job is um, my main job is to teach, not to do research. I am not a, what they call a tenure track professor. Tenure track professors in EEB at least, so tenure track professors are research professors who teach. Mm -hmm. I'm a teaching professor who does my research on the side, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just a, a flip of the responsibilities of the job. But mm -hmm. that's what I went to school for, to be able to have this job. This is the, this is the job of my dreams. It really is. This is what I was aiming for and didn't know it <laughs> back when I thought I wanted to be a high school teacher. Um, this is really, this is really sort of the best of both worlds because I get to see many fresh faces coming in out of high school, right? And they're all off into the world in that same position I found myself in years ago and completely failed at. Um, but yet I still am surrounded by colleagues who inspire me, uh, keep me interested in my research. Um, and the students who come back into my upper level courses and 
and and they inspire me and you know it's like it's like this big web of intrigue all of the time of things that are just interesting right like what are you learning about what did you think about this and why is it why are you in this class you know and they give you these explanations that just are like wow that's that's so cool <laughs> you know like, i'm glad you're here you know thanks thanks for coming to class and uh, like there's a couple of students in my herpetology class that got to hit up it's like what are you doing here <laughs> you know this isn't your this isn't like what i thought you would be doing mm-hmm. um, but yeah at the same time there's a couple of students coming in to my upper level classes this spring who have been around me for several semesters and they're seniors now and they've been coming to this uh, weekly seminar that i ha- that we have uh and it's been so rewarding to watch them walk through the process of being a freshman, finding their way, and now getting ready to graduate this spring, and and they're just going to be going off into a master's program or doing something cool with bio, and so that that's that's really gratifying and super fun to watch. So, yeah, it's like the it's like a dream job, it really. It's it's all the best worlds of of what I originally thought I wanted to do, and you know, as a high school teacher, without all the high school stuff. Mm. Because <laughs> in high school, you can't say, you know, how about you just step out into the hallway? <laughs> <laughs> you know, go calm down somewhere. But in college, you can you can be more of a person. Mm-hmm, you, can sure. pull, yeah. you can pull a student in and say, what in the heck are you thinking? Or mm-hmm. what's going on with you? And how can I help? Right? But you can't do that at high school level. There's so many rules and regulations and so many people pushing at you all the time to not be a human. Mm-hmm. Uh, where at least in college, you can be a human and you can help people get find their way through college and, and find themselves. So it's so many people that, you know, find themselves as a person, like, what are my interests? What do I want to do with my life? You know, and they don't know when they first come in at 18 or 17 years old. And by the time they leave a few years later, they're kind of like on their way, you know, it's kind of fun to watch. And it's really very, very gratifying. So, so yes, the projects sit there while I do the, <laughs> while I do the teaching thing, but that's okay with me. My, the field I'm in and, you know, frog behavior, frog social behavior is, you know, not a hopping field. <laughs> uh, it is, but it is, I mean, there's lots of people that there's, there's probably a dozen people I can name off the top of my head that are interested in, in that sort of thing at an active level, but all the people who work in social behavior of frogs, you know, they're so scattered and, and they're all doing all different kinds of things and they're all super busy as well. And so this sort of research is, this isn't finding a COVID vaccine, right? This is research that's long and slow and thoughtful and I'm okay with that. I might be 70 by the time I publish these things, but that's okay, I'm all right with that. <laughs> so what is like, just like, what is one of the projects that you're currently working on slowly but surely? Oh, well, let's see. What's the most interesting one? Probably, well, actually, there's a little lightweight one that I that is actually the closest one to being published to being ready to get sent out to ask for publication. Um, the uh, my my daughter is one of my daughters is a, also a biologist. She's a wildlife ecologist, and um, we had been we were talking about there's there's this phenomenon where uh, over evolutionary time, sometimes short periods of time, animals will actually. Uh, adjust to, um, yeah, it's not evolutionary time at all because it's just human interaction. So it's all short period. I've got to correct myself there. Um, like, so there's this example of rabbits out in Colorado at, a, at an airport that are deaf, literally deaf. Mm. They, live, they live on the airport. Yeah. Uh, graze, have their, have their warrens and everything on airport property. Um, and they're deaf. They don't, they have no 
almost no sense of hearing. And that's happened just over what the last 80 years or so, right? Um, so, and this is genetic. This is something that's been passed along. So they're born deaf. Because mm -hmm, they don't need to hear, right? It's all visual. So what they're expecting, and, and I haven't looked at the research lately, but they, of course what they would expect is over time, over very long, you could go thousands of years here, their eyes would get slightly bigger, their color vision would might get better, their, you know, their sensitivity to movement might get a little better because the only way for them to see a predator, to know that a predator is there is to actually visualize it, right? Not mm -hmm. to hear it. Um, so it's kind of cool and interesting. And it occurred to me that we don't really know for the frogs on my pond, one of the things that was always super annoying for me <laughs> in the data set is my pond, my main pond, is right underneath the flight path of a couple of flights for Brad from Bradley Airport. Okay. And so you'd hear the airplanes coming on, you can hear them on the sound file, you can hear them coming, and you yeah. can watch it. Watch it get louder on the soundtrack and then it fades away. <clears throat> it's pretty regular, and in some cases somewhat busy overnight, in some cases not. And so it occurred to me that we could look at this and be like, oh, when the planes are flying overhead, does that change the calling behavior of the frogs down on the ground? And if it does, does it change the behavior of either species or both or neither? Like, if, like who is anybody impacted by this at all? And so we're trying to pull that information out of the, my daughter's poking away at that right now. She's, a, she's much better with R statistics than I am. Uh, so she's gonna, she's been poking around in that a little bit to see if she could pull out some information in. So just to see if uh, if there is anything going on. Are the frogs calling differently before an airplane can be detected um, than they are while the airplane is detected? And does that change how they behave after the airplane noise fades away and we can mm -hmm. hear it right? And then they, you know, and, and it doesn't tell us exactly what the frogs are hearing because we'd have to do a lot of different measurements to be able to tell um, if the frogs can even hear that noise. Um, and if they can, at what point can they hear it versus when I see it on the sonogram, right? Mm -hmm. like sonogram, on the oscillogram. Um, if can, we can see it, we can hear it, but we're hearing it and seeing it on a microphone that's recording for our level of sound. And there's all kinds of other measures you have to take because they hear a lot differently than we do. But it would be interesting just as a, as a one-off, just to take a look and see there's a regular flight pattern, that noise creeping in, getting louder, creeping out. Does that have any sort of impact on what the frogs are doing down on the ground calling to each other? Because remember, the calling is key. The whole reason they're there on those ponds is to call. That's their job, right? They mm -hmm. have to call or they're not going to get a mate. And so that's the key thing. And so if it does impact them, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> yes. And we know, we know that there's um, what we call anthropogenic noise, right? Fancy words for human-generated noise, human impacts, right? There's uh, street lights that we know are a problem for lots of different kinds of wildlife, birds and mammals and, and amphibians. Um, regular loud noises are a problem for birds and mammals. And in some cases, um, amphibians have been shown to shut up when there's a very loud noise suddenly, you know, they'll quiet for a few seconds. And yeah. Then start back up again. Um, so that sort of stuff is interesting to, to sort of poke at. Um, but we don't really know if an airplane flying overhead, or, you know, a jet flying overhead at a regular interval, if they recognize that for what it is and then quiet down and just wait it out and pick back up, or if they keep trying to call over that noise because it is regular and they're used to it. I don't mm. know. We don't know. So this is the sort of thing that we're kind of digging around in those numbers for. Looking at the, the rates of calls and the numbers of calls and and who, which species are calling versus not calling before, during, and after those flyover events. So that would be fun. interesting to find. Yeah, that that does sound fun. Well, and the and the thing is, you know, <laughs> you talk to somebody 
outside of sciences about stuff like this and like so who cares <laughs> <laughs> why do we care if that bothers them and then the, the trick there is understanding that you know we're visiting this planet just like they are and understanding how we interact and how we impact the lives of wildlife it may just be frogs in a pond now but if those simple frogs in a pond are reacting to just something straightforward like a jet flying overhead that has applications across other species and other animals and the entire ecosystem as a whole which of course has an impact on us because we are part of the ecosystem whether we like to believe that or not we cannot mm -hmm. isolate ourselves out of nature <laughs> we can try yes but as COVID has shown us we cannot yes <laughs> been no no better example than that you know you might you know, I get students who say this all the time. One of the exercises I do in bio, which you guys did not get to do because mm, we're not in person, is that we have this thought exercise. Um, mammals, and find a mammal, find them doing something, describe their behavior, and then tell me who their predator is, and tell me one of their prey items, and tell me, you know, a couple of, it's the whole community ecology thing that we, that whole unit there that we do at the end of the semester. And students usually have a lot of fun with it, but I cannot tell you how many times they show me a human and then they say this human was doing this, trying to pick up a girl on the corner of the street. <laughs> Here's my friend Bob. He's trying to pick up this girl again. He knows she walks by here every day at this time, so he waits, you know, just to try to be cool while she's walking by. Uh, but we haven't, you know. And then they, I say list list a prey, and they'll say chicken, right? Mm -hmm. And then predator. We have no natural no natural predators. It's like mm. <laughs> time to recycle back through bio again, guys. <laughs> uh, but we do. We have lots of predators, and um, and parasites so yeah it's it's kind of fun when when you sort of start to think about those kinds of layers of how humans do interact with nature even as isolated as we are in our clean tidy homes warm all summer long all warm all winter long or cool in the summer as you suffer down in houston <laughs> um, you still are part of an ecosystem and it's just that you're a few steps removed right so how you heat and cool your home what you eat what you wear how you outfit your house all of those things have reaches beyond your actual use of those items right and that has another reach and all of that has an impact on the greater ecosystem of the world as a whole so remembering that we're part of this is, is kind of key so that's part of why i do these those exercises though is to sort of get people thinking about that kind of stuff but yeah so yeah so so when you do science like that as as you learned from frank when you're ch chatting with him it's like we're just we're just solving little pieces of a big giant puzzle yes a puzzle the size of the world right? and there's a tiny little jigsaw puzzle pieces that that in my phd work i've put into place and someone else is putting in something over there and something over there and eventually we'll we'll have it <laughs> i hope never because it's mm. super cool and we to, to run out of questions would be terribly sad yes agreed <laughs> but, but that's the fun of it right you know where does that puzzle piece fit and, and how can I fit it? You know, and what does it end up looking like when I'm done with my work? What exactly did I find? Where go? So it's kind of, that's the fun part about science. Yeah, I think it's, it's also great to just like talk, talk to people about science um, because like I would have never explored bullfrogs and green frogs like on my own accord. And th that's like one of the main reasons why I, I like started this podcast was like I, I found that whenever you talk to like different people about like whatever they're passionate about like then like you're whenever you talk to someone about their passions and like what they're interested in they they explain it and talk about it in such a way that it moves you and it like moves you in a way to like 
oh, like I, I see how like someone would be interested in that. And it makes, at least it makes me like want to like explore that for myself because I, I see like, oh, this person's like really interested in this for some reason. Let me explore it for myself because like there's got to be something cool about it. Um, so yeah, and like it, it has definitely piqued my interest to like, I definitely want to listen to like the recordings and like kind of hear the difference. And like, it, I think it's so funny how those like green frogs have to like wait for like the exact moment. Okay, like now's my time to shine, you know, and like put their call out there like before like they're drained out by the bullfrog. Um, so I think it's super cool just to like, and science is just so, there's so many topics and it just, it's like, there's just so much to it that like it's hard to like explore all of it um it's like you're like, in a massive pinball machine it is so all over the place it's overwhelming honestly um but it's so cool um it is and and the thing is that the farther you get down your track and a little more specialized in your track especially if you go into the sciences is you just get sucked in farther and farther and it seems like you're in a black hole. Like you're just getting drawn in so quickly down to that point. Right. Because there's, it just like, ah, you know, <laughs> it all starts to be kind of overwhelming. And so that you start sort of dismissing these other out farther topics, farther topics, and you find yourself, you sit and finally one day you're thinking, wow, I've really specialized in something. Yeah. I, right? yeah. Well, like even just like this one topic of the bullfrogs and green frogs, like I've always been more, on the the cell biology side rather than like mm -hmm. the behavioral so like in my head i'm like what's happening like on like a cell level like with these like different behaviors and like that's what like that's how where kind of my mind goes like yes i i hear like the behavior is like doing this and this like but what like what is happening inside like the neurons and the cells to make this happen you know um and it's just like yes the the behavioral is complex and then like even just like the insides the biology the cells that go into making that behavior happen the body parts the like that is also a whole another complex thing that you have to explore to like yeah how are they able to like hear you know the yeah. sounds the bullfrogs the the jets overhead um it's just like yeah it's it's complex already and then you can even zoom in even further and it's even more complex and it's just like crazy and I, I always find myself in this situation whenever I'm like studying biology or just like reading research I'm like every single time for some reason I'm like oh my goodness like it's just this world is just so incredibly complex just like our bodies it's like how yep. does everything fall into place and work together for us to even live how are we able to maintain homeostasis how are we able to do this it's thing so that expensive. we call life yeah you know? and and life in general is so expensive and so complicated and so inefficient just think about an endothermic body how inefficient is it for us to have a little furnace running our body's heat all the time how inefficient is it we have to eat all the time <laughs> like <laughs> So we have to be much better predators in order to be in order to keep our bodies warm. And like it's this self-feeding cycle. But the thing is, how did that all get put into place? You can't just suddenly flip a page and now I'm going to be a, a great predator and be able to feed myself almost constantly to keep my body warm, right? Like that's a slow, like all the steps that have to happen to get yeah. from being ectothermic to being ectothermic with a little bit of homeo of endothermy, right? And like the inching forward until some 
until you get that flipped into another whole way of running your body. It's just amazing. But the thing about, the cool thing about science overall is like, just for example, me with my frogs and people are like, who cares, right? Like frogs, frogs, you know, my kids frogs used to- are cool. My, I've my kids, always been a fan my, of frogs. My kids, my kids' teachers would ask, so what is it your mom does? Because <laughs> oh, my mom's a scientist, you know, in science class or whatever. And what does your mom do? She studies frog sex. <laughs> because in middle school right and by that yeah. point they understood what i was doing they were helping me in my field site you know by that point they're like oh she studies frog sex and of course everybody giggles and they're the <laughs> hero of the class for making the teacher get embarrassed because they said the word sex out loud and that sort of thing but the uh, the thing is though my frogs are doing stuff that all other species are doing as well birds have interference vocally and as far as you know predate predation are concerned Insects do this, all kinds of other frog species do it, mammal, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of animals that interact vocally as well as physically, as, you know, as competitors and predators and everything. And so, so my study system is really, at the end of the day, meaningless, right? It's the questions that are of interest, right? How does this species and this species manage mm -hmm. to live, right, without, and, and survive? And so that's a greater community question, right? How does that community set up and look the way that community does it does it because organisms are interacting with other species right different species are, are interacting that's what a community is how does that all work right that's at the end of the day that's the baseline of my questions i'm just using a specific study system that's right. easy to study but i could take those same exact questions and apply them to any other group that i wanted to right yeah. you can do it with humans i could take those questions and do it with humans Walk into any singles bar, any bar, anywhere near a college campus. You could ask <laughs> almost every question I ask about my frogs, you could apply it to humans in a bar, right? Yeah. and Like I, you were saying earlier about your travel. Sure. <laughs> for sure. And I think like if there was one thing that I took away from your from your class was that there's always, there's always trade-offs. There's always yes! give and take. There's always like something you have to give up for something else is like, oh if you like if you yeah if, as you said like if you like if you're ectothermic then this, this awesome. there's like that that's like if there was one thing that I had to take away from that class was like there's always a trade-off you know whether yeah. that be you're allotting more energy for like defenses or you're allotting more energy for for like eating or whatever whatever there's always a trade-off and like once I realized that even just like on my trip that I just took, like I was mm -hmm. like, oh, there's always a trade. Do we like go here? Or do we go here? You know, there's a trade off. There's like how you much always do we have? Up. How much time do we have? You know, yes. Am I not gonna kill my passenger? And you know, between now and then, yeah, that's all. You know, when when do we have to stop to do laundry? Because that's gonna eat up some time and some money. Can you know, exactly, exactly? So like, there's a trade off at a cellular level, and then there's a trade off in just everyday life. I'm like, whoa, what the heck is happening right now? <laughs> Micro to the macro, all the way up. Yeah, so that was if there was if there was one thing that I had to take away from your classes, like there's always a trade off. So like look for that trade off and like figure that out and then that'll give you a better understanding of like what is happening with that certain organism or with that cell or whatever. Right. And you do this every day as a human, you're doing this every day, right? You're looking at those trade offs and making decisions. You're just not doing it consciously. Yes. Right? Just like you said on that trip. Um, and so, so you, in, in a natural world, the same exact stuff is happening. It's just different events, but the, the impacts are the same and the decision-making processes have to be the same as well. 
Yeah, and like and some people are really efficient at the trade-off decisions, and some some you know organisms are really efficient, and some of them are not. Yeah, and like like my initial thoughts, like when I heard that you were talking about like <clears throat> oh if like the planes have an effect on like the 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 frogs calls, I was like well in my head like I immediately thought like oh well I think it probably does because like if they are being drowned out then they probably should wait so they don't waste energy that like they always need and always are looking for a source of energy and it's like always like it's so hard for them to like obtain energy so Mm -hmm. I would assume like oh if they're if they know they're being drowned out then like I would hope that they would withhold their call to like save that energy and like use that energy more efficiently when the plane is gone Mm -hmm. and that's what the 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 green frog did like it waits until they're not drowned out so they but it's even use... more complex than that because yes. they're there all summer long. They're there from mid-May till the end of July. So do they behave differently with the planes early in the year when they're well-fed because they've been out stuffing themselves before they start their, field, their breeding season? Or back at the end of July when they're really hungry because they haven't been feeding so much because they're so busy defending their territories, do they then become a little sloppier with spending their energy during a plane flyover or do they more likely shut up because they have less energy are they measuring in themselves i can't do it right now i'm going to wait till this thing goes overhead but in the spring are they whatever even whatever if like i'm good right I, now you know i got lots i can you know it's like i yeah. paid right i just got paid i'm heading out with my friends and i'm gonna buy dinner for everybody at the beginning of the month at the end of the month i'm like hmm should i get a dessert <laughs> you know what i mean yeah right, right. so that's the other part of it. So you throw out a simple question like, are the plane flyovers causing an issue, a behavioral decision that these frogs have to make based on their own physiological condition um, sticking in? Or is it just, hey, you know, it's, I'm, I'm calling it and I'm not going to waste that time. Um, that thing, the girls can't hear it anyways. I'm just going to call. Mm-hmm. Or what, I mean, like who, that, and that's, so a simple question that I think probably has a relatively straightforward answer could could grow into this bigger okay but wait a minute right yeah if we find no change in how they call and then we start looking at the change uh, at looking at it from a week by week perspective does that no change is that just the average that we're looking at for the whole season and now if we break it up by week is it different at the beginning of than it is at the end of the summer don't know like your road trip <laughs> Oh, we're running out. We're running out of money. We got three more days that we could potentially stretch. If we do it two, then we could do this. But if we don't do this, then we could get three days out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, and that's yeah. the cool part about that's, science. That's yeah. That's the beauty of like science. It's just, sure. It's fascinating to me. Um, but yes. Um, so thank you for taking time out of your day to <laughs> talk shop. I'm definitely looking forward to like hearing at least a snippet of the recordings um so like you could just send that my way that would be awesome mm-hmm. um thank you for taking the time out of your day i really enjoyed talking to you and um i did enjoy your class and i did take away at least one thing from it um there's always a trade-off um always yes always a trade-off um so thank you you're very welcome thanks for having me it was a lot of fun to chat it was it was always fun to talk with you anyways (laughs) well i hope you have a good rest of your day you too thanks uh if you want to hang out a second i'll show you what you what the sound is yes for sure all right
Let me just scroll past all the fun stuff. So here, I'll share my screen with you. You can see, I don't know if you can, I played on my speakers if you'll be able to hear it. I think so. I think you should be able to share the audio as well. It's not letting me share a screen. Here, okay, let me. Can you try now? I don't know if we can see it yet. I see it. Yeah, I see your screen. So here's a bullfrog. This is F24, F29. See this little patch he has here on his side? Mm -hmm. He was with me for all three years of my field work. <laughs> Super cool dude. He went from being very um, unable to keep his own territory uh, and bouncing around the pound from site to site to site. Every night he was in a different place trying to hold the territory until the third year where he was like the big bad boy on the pond for the whole summer. He had a territory that nobody even dared, like they didn't even dare come near. And this is a little green frog, so they're about a third of the size. But see the difference? These are exact same scale. But look at the green frog call versus a bullfrog call. Yeah. So completely subsumed by the bullfrog calls. But um, so here's the uh, calling times. All right, so here's... <laughs> oh, I hope this works. I think I have to play this. Uh, don't want to use percentage. There we go. So if I play this. Come on. Oh, it's behind the screen here. Ah, I don't know how to make it do that. I want it to be on the other monitor. Do you have time for me to be doing this? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me just stop playing for a second. Uh, escape. I don't want it to be automatic. Oh, there it is. Okay, so let me just, I can't drag it over. That's weird. It's playing, but it's playing on another, on the other screen. All right, stop showing. There we go. Okay, now back to automatic. I want to do primary monitor. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't hear the sound. Let's see. Plenarations. Hmm. This thing where they interact with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the call that actually goes with this. Can you hear that? So that's this guy. And the voice changes now. Seven notes. There's the other guy. Seven notes. And then the first guy. So this is called song. There's an entire call, a song, right? Here, they switch. Like at the drop of a hat, and they start alternating notes. Do you hear the two different voices? Yeah. Now listen for the end. Okay, so that's that first frog giving that last bit of call, like, I'm going to get you, right? These, <laughs> these are two bullfrogs that are competing with each other. They do this all the time. But the question is, can they do this interspecifically? In other words, can green frogs do the same thing using bullfrog calls? So these bar plots are kind of, I call them, become, uh, uh, scan codes, right? <laughs> scan bars, scanning bars. So we have this, uh, this, these are bullfrog calls and these are green frog calls over a three minute and 30 second period of time. Um, so this is crammed in, right? Uh, actually it's three, I think it's three, yes, three minutes. Um, 
So here's, no, so here's a five minute period of time from five minutes to 10 minutes. Here's a, here's a block um, of them. And it looks like they're completely overlapping. If each one of those bars is an indication that a call is overlapping, but if you zoom in to like a two minute period of time, mm -hmm. five to seven minutes, you can see it starting to spread out a little bit. And so by the time you get to um, where you're in just 30 seconds of time, that's what this looks like here. Oh yeah, so you can so yeah. Here's, yep. So here's bullfrogs calling, and it's this is done in one one hundredth of one millisecond at a time. So during these milliseconds, if there's a bullfrog calling, you get to mark. So as you're going through these tiny bits of time, that's why some of them are broader than others, right? So these are both green frogs calling, and these are bullfrogs. But look, there's only one overlap right there out of all of those, and that's just a thirty second period of time, right? Right. I don't know if I can get that to that call. It's not. Well, maybe. Right. So this is not this exact sound file, but you can hear the green frogs, gunk, gunk, gunk. Hear them? Did you hear the green frogs just there? Yes. There's green frogs. And as soon as a bullfrog starts, they stop until they get a space. And then there are the bullfrogs going at it again. And then right at the end. <laughs> See? It's just a pause. And the green frogs are popping right on it and getting their calls in. So that's what intrigued me, this, this stuff right here. So I, what I found was that these guys are incredibly good at avoiding calls and so what I did is I took a whole set of a like a half hour period of time from 10 different days of very busy calling behavior time except for one night which was this June 12th business and I took the bullfrog call pattern and kept it exactly the same for all of these things and I repeated this 10,000 2,500 times and so then I took the green frog calls for those same bullfrog periods and literally just took them and jumbled them randomly to fall time-wise anywhere on that 30 minute period of time. Mm -hmm. When you repeat, that's called randomization. So you're randomizing them and you're doing 2,500 iterations of those over time. What happens is you get a probability of given random calling patterns. If green frogs are calling randomly related to the bullfrog pattern. So keep the bullfrog pattern the same and then throw those green frog calls, the exact same ones you had throw them on there randomly rather than when they actually happened. This is the overlap distribution here from about five to 7% of the time here, um, mm -hmm. here about, here about a, a 0.5 to about 0.75% of the time, they actually are overlapping randomly. So the curves are what happens over these 2,500 randomizations. The arrow is where for this time period on this night, that's the arrow of the actual overlap. Right? Okay. So actually, overlaps are happening much less. Much less than, than expected. And expected by random. So green frogs are definitely doing something to avoid this this overlap. They hear they do touch a little bit on each other here. It's not significant here because this is a very very cold night. Mm -hmm. So being ectothermic, they're very slow and very it's hard to call. So when you have a period of time where you can call because it's slightly warm enough everybody's calling and so the overlap is expected to happen and there's also very few calls so the overlap is expected to happen a little bit more but yeah look at the difference here that they actually overlap about 1.8 percent of the time and they should be overlapping about 
5.8% of the time and they mm -hmm. don't. So, so from a statistical viewpoint, this is, yeah. <laughs> kind Definitely of statistic statistically significant. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So it's kind of crazy, but yeah. So there's your, there's your calls, but I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of 3000 hours of calls. And it's just, yeah, it's crazy. Some of them are completely silent. It's the middle of the day, you know, whatever. And some of them are like those bullfrogs going at it with each other. And that's just two bullfrogs interacting with each other. Right? That was cool to hear like the two bullfrogs like alternate and like have that interaction with each other. Yeah, they're insane. They're insane. And that again, I mean, plus not only are they, and so that's the thing too, is, is we know that they can learn to recognize their neighbors. So in the beginning of the season, they get all their wrestling and fighting and calling behavior settled out okay you stay over there and i'll stay over here kind of thing like i we call it the dear enemy effect right i know who you are the, the stranger neighbor right i know who you are i'm familiar with you but the stranger neighbor shows up now i can hear a different voice i gotta go beat this dude up and that's what happens like all the frogs on the pond are gonna go beat up this new guy who just showed up and started calling because they don't recognize that voice and they haven't worked out their differences and figured out who's who yet and who's who gets the prime territory and who gets to settle out around the prime territory, which is super cool. But there's so much going on. It's just insane. Yeah. <laughs> you get there for hours about it. <laughs> I can't take your whole morning. No, that, that was cool to experience. I was not, yeah, especially like you can hear the, like the difference in like the pitch of like the two bullfrogs and like yeah. one was higher and then one was lower and just like them alternating. That, that was cool. That was cool. Yeah. And while you should, you can always recognize, like I can always recognize a bullfrog calling um, they are always going to sound slightly different from each other um, just because their body size and their condition and their, mm. their overall body temperature from their microhabitat is going to be a little bit, you know, so they always are uh, different, slightly different from each other. So it's cool. It's cool stuff. For sure. But birds do this. They recognize each other. Uh, like, so especially birds that can't see each other. So if you like the shoreline, mm -hmm. You know, all those grass beds and all those marshes that you go by, those things are full of birds. Um, and one, there's a species of birds called clapper rails that we have here around in Connecticut. There's these tiny little thin as a rail, they call them. They look like a chicken that's been squashed sideways, like, like they got their wings squeezed in. And so they go, they live in the grass, of these grass beds. Mm -hmm. they, never, they hardly ever see each other. Well, so how do they know where, who's who, right? They have signatures in their vocal their vocal signatures are recognizable by their family members and their friends and their mates and their neighbors. Uh, they very rarely actually interact with each other except for breeding and you know raising chicks and that sort of thing. But they know who's who because of their voice. And and that's because they can't see each other. And this we see this phenomenon across lots and lots of animals, like owls and and bats and you know anybody who's operating at night. How do you how do you know where your mate is or where your offspring are? You recognize their voices, which is so weird to think about because they all sound the same to us, right? Yeah. But there's vocal signatures in it that you can tease out, which is super cool, in my opinion. That yeah, that is super cool, for sure. Oh, the other cool thing about vocalizations in birds, and it probably is true for frogs as well, but I haven't tested any of this. But in birds, we know that they have local dialects. Like the like the red cardinals, like a like a like a northern cardinal that yeah. lives in northern California, has a different, slightly different dialect than northern cardinals that live, say, in Colorado. Right? There's different populations that have language differences, like the difference between us and Canadians, or between here in Connecticut and Rhode Island, where they, you know, like what's a hoagie versus a sub versus a grinder, right? Mm -hmm. Simple things like that that we have in our language, animals have that as well, which is 
really cool stuff. <laughs> yes, I agree. But anyways, it's all science cool stuff. <laughs> we all agree science is cool, right? Science is cool. Science yeah. is definitely cool. cool. So are, have you taken ornithology yet? I have not. Oh. What, was your, what are you taking this semester? I'm taking um, Gen Chem 2, um, mm -hmm. Physics 1, um, Microcell oh. Biology, um, Intro to Microcell Biology. Mm -hmm. um, who teaches I'll, that? I, I don't. I don't remember who I, don't know anybody over I signed up for. Oh, yeah, it's an NCB class. Um, and then I'm doing accounting because I'm a business major. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, Comparative politics, yeah, I think. So, how it. are you going to blend your business interests with science? Are you going to be an anthropologist? <laughs> the goal is med school, but I always I wanted to have a plan B if that didn't work out. But the goal is definitely like med school for sure. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I've always been interested in like biology and like medicine. Yep. But I was like, oh, like, I don't want all my classes to be STEM. So, like, I'll do business, too. That you sounds should. interesting. Uh, it's actually a really good resource to have. There. I, um, I will never forget my vet when I was a teenager. He had just started his vet business fresh out of vet school. And he had to go back to school to learn how to run a business to keep his, to keep his vet practice going. So, understanding the business aspect of things and the reasons why Healthcare makes decisions that they make in some cases. Um, mm -hmm. Super, super important for a good doctor to understand. Yeah. 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 And don't be discouraged by the whole, you have to have a perfect 4.0 in all your sciences and everything else and or else you don't get into med school kind of thing. There's, there's, yeah. <laughs> don't get sucked into that whole super competitor kind of, it can be really, it'll change you as a person if you get sucked in. I, I know pre-med students who, who in small study groups will tell their actual friends, supposedly, the wrong answer to things. Um, oh my goodness. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's that competitive because it means that I'll do better on the MCATs than you will. So, right, it's like that one person that you're out competing is not gonna make a difference in how well you do on the MCATs and how yeah. well, you know, just score well on the MCATs, like stop. Like, don't, yeah, just, you know, don't sell your soul so that you right, know, so yeah. I don't want you to be a doctor like you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> you know, um, but so be very careful about that sort of thing. Don't get sucked into a whole mentality that you can't go to med school if you're if you don't go that exact perfect trackway that they they say you're supposed to. Obviously, you want to have a nice, well-rounded package, right? You want to be the yeah, whole package. You want to be the whole sure. package for any school, and and uh, you know schools that just sort of lop off everybody who doesn't don't have a perfect 4.0, they're just kidding themselves because it's not an indication of how well a student will do. And we know this. I mean, yes, you know that yeah. more than anyone. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's just the whole, the reality is standardized testing isn't, is really all about just adding, in my opinion, <laughs> adding more stress to the students, but no, more like, um, it does, it does tell you someone who has zero understanding of all things biological, right? And of course those people should not, you know, if you badly flub the whole MCAT thing, obviously you shouldn't be a candidate for med school. And maybe you just have to do some prep work to get better ready for it. Mm -hmm. been, there have been so many students that I've had who are wonderful as far as what their bedside manner would be like, amazing in their drive and their energy to be a good doctor and to serve underprivileged people or underrepresented people. 
to work with children with birth defects, you know, all these different things, but they can't get into med school because they don't have that perfect 4.0. And it just makes me boil with anger. I just get so angry about that process. Mm -hmm. And they find a way, they end up going off and doing internships and then they find their way into med school eventually. Yeah, and there's no problem with that. Yeah, Yeah. it's just a different path. Don't don't feel like you have to stick with the, the standardized path if you can afford it. That's the other half of it, you know? People who want to be doctors, a lot of them, like they get distracted, distracted off that path because of a bump in the road. And it's like, stay the course, you know, like stay focused. Don't give up. You know, if you, if you truly want to do it. For sure. For sure. I totally understand that. Yeah. Well worth it. Yes, I agree. I can't believe you do I can't believe they make you guys do physics and chem in the same semester. (laughs) I know you have to, but I just can't. It's like, oh God, that would kill me. I could do it. I could do it. I believe in myself. Yeah. 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 And are you mathy? No, I'm not, but I, I'll figure it out. Hopefully, like, I just, somehow I always figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> It'll get there. Just keep practicing. It'll be, it'll be good. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I would, I would consider myself pretty self-motivated to do yeah. what I need to get done. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, talking with people helps too. So those small groups sure. are highly undervalued teaching someone else something like even a tiny thing like how to solve a certain problem helping someone else walk through it and explaining to them why they have to do it this way it's unbelievable how much i learn stuff every single day that i'm teaching literally every, I, that's one of the things i love about my job i learn i have learned so much i feel like my head will explode sometimes it's like what <laughs> yeah because you, you look at it in like a different light because whenever you're trying to articulate it you're like trying to think of different ways to articulate it and then like it'll be like oh wait i've never really thought about it in that way but like that's so true you know i never truly understood hardy weinberg until i taught it that's why i'm so that's why i'm just like no but our professors used to make us memorize that stuff and it's like mm-hmm. i'm not good at memorizing give me a problem like give me the problem to solve give me the yes. tools Give me the tools so that I understand with each tool. That's a wrench, that's a screwdriver, that's a hammer, right? Now I can build this little house, right? If mm-hmm. I know the tools and how they work. That's all I care about. Yes. So I switched into that when I when I realized how poorly I understood Hardy Weinberg when I first started teaching. I totally flipped that. I was just like, yeah, no. nobody's memorizing equations. Sorry, you don't need to. Yes, I agree. But but not everybody learns well that way. I did, so that's what I stick with. But. That is true. Anyways. Well, it was really nice to talk with you. It's as you can tell, it's hard to be away from people. Like every time I run into somebody, it's like, (laughs) (laughs) not talking. (laughs) No, no, I really enjoy. I I did. I really enjoyed talking to you as well. Um, I always love talking biology. So, if you want to, do you want a bit of a frog clip to to play around with? You're welcome to. If you want yes, to have lead in, you want lead in music for your for your podcast. Yes. Uh, I'll see if I can upload it. yeah, I'll see if I can send it to you. That's I might have to. I might have to put it in the Yukon Dropbox. Do you ever use that? I'm sure I could figure it out if okay. you could just like, yeah, simple instruction that I could follow it. I'm yeah. I I'm I would say I'm tech savvy, so I should. I'm sure it wouldn't be too hard to figure out. Okay, I'll send one to you. Okay. Let me find, let me find one that's just a few seconds, like ten seconds worth of noise. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good luck this semester. Well, yes. Um, yeah, we'll be in touch. Yes, absolutely. Check in. Awesome. Well, right. I hope you have a good rest of your day. You too. I know. One week. Ah! Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> <I> know, <right? laughs> Not ready, but it'll, it'll be fine. Be
It'll be fine. It's 15, you can do anything for 15 weeks. Come on. That's right? true. That's, That's the way true. I always approached every semester. I'd be like, how to juggle the kids with my work. <laughs> with my like, it's only 15 weeks. I can do it. <laughs> I can do it. I can do it. All right. I'll send that to you as soon as I, as soon as I get back to my desk after, after lunch, and then uh, we'll figure that out. Awesome. Sounds All great. Right. All right. Thank you so Talk much. Bye. Bye.